0: Are you ready to take control of your wealth and design the life you envision for yourself and your family? Welcome to Wealth of Insight with Austin Wittenberg from Wittenberg Wealth Partners. Austin guides you through the entire planning process to help you build a plan that seeks to protect your financial future. He empowers you with creative investment opportunities and planning ideas to help you understand and achieve your long-term goals. It's time to gain confidence in your financial future. Now, onto the show.
1: Okay. Welcome back to the Wealth of Insight podcast. We've got Eric Whiting with us today. He's a partner at Yorkel Guyman, which is a law firm me and my dad have worked with for many, many years um, and thought we'd have him on to talk estate planning. Thanks for joining us, Eric.
2: Hey, thank you. i glad to be here.
1: All right. Before we dive too deep into just sort of the basics of an estate plan, thought it makes sense to give you just 60 seconds to talk about how long you've been an attorney, how you sort of got to where you are today.
2: Yeah, I have been practicing for about 13 years now. Um, I focus on uh, estate planning primarily, Uh, do very little else. I'm a a tax attorney by background. Um, So after I finished law school, I I got an LLM in, in tax with a certificate in estate planning and employee benefits and have really focused on estate planning the whole time. So I, I know an awful lot about very I just try and help clients with this piece and make sure they've got the, the right documents in place. So, you know, a lot of estate planning and business succession planning.
1: Awesome. Well, that's what we appreciate appreciate about you is that you know a lot, but about this one piece. Was when we're putting together a financial plan for clients, estate planning is a big component of that. And I know enough to be dangerous, but You know that's why we rely on people like you. So let's get into it here. What we've mentioned this word a few times here: estate planning, estate plan, that kind of stuff. What is an estate plan, and why does somebody need to have that put in place?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a good question. A lot of people think about estate planning as something that only the rich do, and you know, it's about deciding where your millions of dollars goes. But really, an estate plan is the legal documents that prepare for your passing and determine what is going to happen with your estate after you're gone. So there are questions. If I were to blast off tomorrow, who would become the guardian of my kids? If I were to blast off tomorrow, where does my money go? Um, how am I going to make sure that if I have, you know, for example, young kids at home, they get the money at the right time under the right circumstances? And there's a lot of those open questions. Even if you don't have young children, the estate plan is you being in the driver's seat about Uh, making sure your stuff goes where you want it to go and in the way that you want it to go to either the next generation or whoever your beneficiaries are at the end of the day. And and so a typical estate plan is usually thought of as, you know, last will and testament, a revocable living trust, powers of attorney. It's really all of those things, but each one of those documents has a a particular task that it completes for you in uh, making sure that you control and are in the driver's seat for that plan.
1: So do I really need to pay somebody like you or can't my family just figure out all this kind of stuff once I'm dead?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And you know, one of the things that an estate plan does is it sort of removes you from the judicial system. A lot of estate planning... Uh, so for example, if you don't have an estate plan in place, can you still get mom and dad's house? Sure. You can go through probate. You can uh, walk through that process of transferring title to assets but it's all under the supervision of the court. So it's a time-consuming, expensive process. You know, people will say, well, do I need financial powers of attorney? Well, you, you don't have to have them, but you can go through a guardianship and conservatorship process with the court where you're going to end up hiring two attorneys, one to represent you and one to represent the incapacitated individual. Um, you're going to have hearings. It's, it, again, it's time-consuming and it's expensive. You know, who becomes the guardian of your children? Your surviving family members can petition the court for guardianship of your kids, but we don't know who's going to end up uh, doing that petition. We don't know uh, what the court's going to decide. So it leaves a lot of open questions when you don't have the plan in place. You know, a lot of those things can be answered through the court, but again, you're going to drastically increase your cost, the burden, the burden, and everything else. Whereas, if we have that that power of attorney in place, if we have that last will and testament or that trust in place, it's going to answer all those questions ahead of
1: time. I want to stick on that point here for a second because I think that's something I didn't really understand, and most people don't understand as it relates to guardians for children. So, I, you know, I in a typical scenario is that addressed through the will? Maybe we start with the will and we, you know, we touch on that.
2: The law allows you, uh, under Utah law, to nominate an individual who can serve as guardian for your children. And if you've got that nomination in place, those folks can step in uh, without any question and become the guardians for your minor children. And if you don't have that in place, what we end up seeing is family members who are either fighting uh, to take guardianship or or fighting to not take guardianship over uh, those children. And so it's really important for the client to think through, you know, who do I want to raise my kids? Who do I not want to raise my kids? And and sometimes um, it's it's the latter that that drives that decision. But ultimately, if you don't decide, you're you're putting a judge in the position of of deciding who's best to raise your kids. And those, you know, that judge is not going to know your family uh, well enough to make that decision.
1: Yeah. And I think it goes back to what you mentioned earlier when I asked what is an estate plan. And And maybe the shortest answer is it's just you being in control of the situation as opposed to leaving it up to whoever's left. And like I said, I didn't realize sort of when we first had kids, we didn't have our documents in place for a while. And I didn't realize, Hey, if something happens to me and my wife, my kids don't just automatically go to my parents or to my sister. They sort of go to, I don't know if, you know, go to the state so to speak. And now my Mm -hmm. family's got a, figure out who's going to do this and maybe they don't agree. And to your point, maybe it ends up being somebody we didn't really want. Whereas had we had this stuff done on the front end, we get to be in ultimate control of what happens to the kids, to our stuff. Maybe it's, we want it to go to charity or whoever the judge isn't going to have that. Isn't going to know our, our intents, our wishes, that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, exactly right.
1: Okay, so we touched a little bit on the guardianship for the kids. Um, I want to just, like I said, you know, I think oftentimes that may be addressed through the will. But what is real? What's the purpose of a will?
2: So the will is a way of transferring assets that are in your name upon your passing to family members or whoever you want to receive them. And at least that's traditionally the way the will is used. So a last will and testament says upon my passing, these are the people that I want to receive my stuff. And you can just be, you can be very descriptive in your will and and lay out particular items that go to particular people, or you can, you know, sort of generally say, look, divide my stuff 50, 50 between my kids. Um, So it can be written in a lot of different ways, but it, it really just says, if there's something in my name upon my passing, here's what I want to do with it. Now, in modern estate planning, we don't typically use the will in that way. The way we use it nowadays is as a backstop, as a net under the trapeze for your trust. And so the, the reason we do that is um, there's some limitations that the will has. First of all, a will is a ticket to probate, right? If if what you have in place for your estate plan is a simple will, the only place where that will is valid is in probate court. So you've really just guaranteed yourself that you're going through the probate process, which as we've already said, is time-consuming and expensive. So we don't like to rely on the will as our primary uh, estate planning vehicle. But instead, if we can use it as a a catch-all so that if we forget to put something into our trust, the will will take care of it and ultimately pour it into our trust. So what we'll do is we'll name our trust as the primary beneficiary, the only beneficiary on that will. So my last will and testament will say, upon my passing, if you find something in my name, put it into my trust. And that makes sure that at the end of the day, everything is going to end up where we want it to go. And the thing about the will, in addition to being a a ticket to probate, it also takes away all of our ability to control those assets. So let's say in your case, Austin, if you were to blast off now with young kids at home, And all you had in place was the will. The will is going to dump. Let's say you and your your spouse passed away together, okay? And those assets are now dumping onto your kids. There's no way in within the will to control um, how those assets are used by your kids. You know who or who's going to manage them until they get old enough. You know all of those kinds of things, unless you either build a trust into your will. Or you build a trust uh, during your life through like a revocable living trust.
1: So let's talk so about you- the trust then, because I think that is another maybe misconception that people have is that trusts are for wealthy people. You hear about trust fund babies or whatever, right? Sort of is out there, but
2: yeah,
1: you know, it sounds like what you're saying is really everybody can have a trust. The trust makes sense for everybody, and it gives you a little bit more control and ability to designate who's in charge of. Of doing what with your estate so are trusts only for the wealthy
2: no i i think trusts are really for just about everybody again there's there's lots of limitations to the will what the trust does is it's going to give us a few really key benefits the first one is control uh, both during your life and after your passing we want to have a good system of control in place that will allow you to determine where the assets go, and then what happens to them after you're gone. So for example, with a trust, we can say, uh, when I'm gone, I want all of my assets to be held in trust for the benefit of my children. And I want the trustee of the trust to make distributions to my kids for education. And then when they reach a certain age, I want you to open it up for them to be able to buy a house. And you can be very, very specific in your trust about how those assets are to be used. And ultimately you, you could say the trust almost owns those assets. It controls their disposition and any instructions that you put on them, even if you're gone, still have to be followed. And so your trustee takes on that fiduciary responsibility of uh, making sure the trust is followed you know, in accordance with the terms that you set up for it. Um, so that control piece is going to be really key. When the kids get access to those funds, a lot of our clients are concerned about getting too much to their kids too early you know, if, if right. you're 18 and you inherit a million dollars, what's the first thing that you buy?
1: I'm, I'm probably going to Vegas.
2: Right? Well, so <laughs> what we want to do is we want to make sure that the kid isn't going to Vegas, but that they're, you know, getting an education or, or starting a business right. or, you know, right. doing something responsible with those funds. And the trust gives you the ability to control that. The trust also gives us the ability to asset protect. So everything that you leave to your kids directly through your will is going to be owned by them and can be taken from them by, uh, you know, through frivolous lawsuits, divorcing spouses, any of that kind of stuff. If you leave those assets for your kids in trust, nobody can touch the assets that are in there except for the beneficiary. So the trustee can make distributions to your kids, but if somebody's suing your kids, those are not assets that show up. Those are not assets that the creditors can come after. So a tremendous amount of protection is provided through um, trust planning.
1: And I think that's really important too, because what I'm finding is that people have more assets or stuff than they think. And a lot of the time that that's because they're getting in life insurance or something through their, their work. Right. So yep. just in, on your day to day, you're like, well, yeah, I don't have a ton of money. Like it's not going to be that big of an issue, but you know, it could be several hundred thousand dollars upon your death. That just shows up out of nowhere that nobody knows what to do with because you had this insurance policy through work or something like that. Right. And so, having a plan for all of that before it happens just makes everybody's life easier.
2: Yeah. The the other benefit of the trust is going to be that we're going to avoid probate. If we can get all of the assets into the trust and not have anything in your name, remember we said probate was the, the process of transferring assets from your name to the names of your beneficiaries. Well, if you've already transferred the assets out of your name while you're living and put them into your trust, we don't have to go through probate. So we're going to avoid probate. We're going to asset protect the assets. We're going to be able to control them for a much longer period of time and under much better circumstances, all while, all while using the trust. And, and as you said, a lot of times, you know, you might be a, a, a maybe a newly married couple and have only um, a life insurance policy and, and a couple of minor children. Well, that, li- that life insurance policy is an estate, right? It, it's creating some wealth that you need to direct. And if you don't direct it, then it's going to end up dumping on these kids at a time when they're not likely to make the best decisions with it. So if you don't do an estate plan, in other words, the state of Utah is going to create an estate plan for you that says, give all the kids the money at 18, which is probably the worst possible estate plan you could think of. And so we really want to be intentional about thinking through with the client, you know, what would be best for your kids and then drafting a trust that really incorporates the kinds of things that the client wants uh, to incentivize for their kids, for example, so, one of the things we're, we're doing a lot of lately is creating trusts that have kind of a banded time period where we say, look, between eight, the ages of 18 and 30, we don't want to do anything that would screw up these kids. And so, the trust after our passing, if our kids are under those or between those ages, we're only going to provide money for education, down payment assistance, a wedding, uh, and maybe healthcare. You know, just a key couple of things that we want to incentivize. And, you know, if, if we do that, we're ensuring that the kids aren't going to get too much too quickly we're ensuring that they're going to have funds uh, for their care, but not too much. And so it's, it's a great way of, of, you know, sort of planning and preventing your kids from making a, an irresponsible decision with those funds at an early age.
1: Yeah. And, and we tend to prefer that, you know, at least early on, for sure, that sort of staged distribution approach. Because one of the things, you know, you hope that you live a long life and that over the course of your life, you have the ability to instill sort of your vision and your values and you know, all of those things on your kids, grandkids, et cetera. But if something happens before you have a chance to do that, in the trust, you can try to duplicate that to a certain extent, right? You can say, look, like you said, you know, education is really important to me or whatever. So for this time period, we're going to focus, hey, education, you got it. Whatever you want to do, education wise but the ferrari maybe he's going to have to wait till the, the next time man right or whatever so i you know having that ability to build in some of those values and and you know which you know again i know you and i have talked about this a lot offline but try, maybe more important than the money is what type of values and what is this the purpose of that money right and so having that staged approach can help try to force that in if you don't have a chance to do it while you're alive
2: yeah. I mean, we often think of money as, you know, like more money is always better and, you know, what could be bad about inheriting money, but there's actually quite a lot of things that could go wrong in in receiving an inheritance. And so we want to make sure that that doesn't happen, right? We, we want these trusts to sort of take the Hippocratic Oath of first, you no know, harm and, you know, make sure that we've thought through how the money can be used and, and how the money should not be used and, and as you said, we can really build in a client's values into the trust so if, if a client really if the client really values education or entrepreneurship, those are things that we can resource within the trust and say, hey guys, you guys have money to access education. And um, but then even then we can be very specific about what kind of education will the trust pay for? What kind of standards do I have to maintain to receive money from the trust? You know, do I, do I need a certain GPA uh, for the trust to continue to pay for this? Um, so there's lots of you know specificity that we can get into with the client in terms of structuring the trust that you know they're not going to see from uh, you know a form of trust or a form will that they might find online.
1: Yeah, you know, we're seeing that more and more. And, you know, I'm sure there are certain instances where some of those online solutions can make sense. But if you really want to try to get your your heart and soul into this, having a guide. So, you know, I'm I'm going to turn you into a guide here, but a guide through the documents and just your experience of all the situations and all the clients you've talked to thinking through a lot of these things, as opposed to somebody just at home trying to figure it out themselves and hope it goes well.
2: Yeah. I, what I found is, you know, I get asked the question a lot, you know, what do you think of, of different uh, software um, companies out there that will draft a will or a trust for you? And, I, and I've reviewed a lot of them. And most of the time when I review them, the problem is not with the document itself. You know, I, I've seen pretty good documents come out of some of those software programs. What tends to be the problem is that the client doesn't usually understand well enough the process and what they should be thinking about, how they should be thinking about it. And so the inputs that they give the machine don't produce the outputs that the client is looking for. And so, you know, I'll often ask the client, you know, what what is it that you think your will or trust does? And then they'll tell me and it doesn't match with what they've produced in the program. And so, you know, that's, that's part of it is that it's just, it's helpful to have somebody walk you through the options and what, what makes sense for your family you know, based on our experience and and what we've seen and and some of those kinds
1: of things. Perfect. Well, you know, I think that's enough time on the will and trust. I know those are the two, at least from my perspective, the two sort of foundational pieces, but there's a couple other documents we always want our clients to have as part of this basic package. Um, One of those being the living will. And, you know, that's a word I think people hear, but they may not, I I think oftentimes people get the will and the living will confused. Let's talk about the living will for a second. How does that differ from just the the will? And and what's the purpose of having that in place?
2: Yeah, living wills, it's it's kind of a terrible name for it because it only creates confusion. Um, But the living will is is better known as the pull the plug document. And it's the one that says, if I am ever in a terminal condition or a persistent vegetative state, what do we do about it? And it gives you the opportunity to indicate your preference. So um, for most folks, it's saying, look, if I'm ever in this position, I want the plug pulled i do not want to be kept alive artificially so if a respirator is keeping me alive go ahead and pull the plug on that respirator a living will is not a uh, do not resuscitate right that's a different thing um it's something we see older much much older clients getting where you know do not resuscitate it says look if i'm having a I'm, I'm coding i'm having a heart attack don't resuscitate me don't right. give me life-saving cpr that's different, right? We're not signing our life away in that way when we execute a living will. All we're saying is if I'm being kept alive by a machine and I can't communicate my wishes, this is what I want you to do. And there was a big case, uh, you know, many years ago now, a woman named Terry Schiavo. she was in a persistent vegetative state and her husband came forward and said, hey, Terry didn't want to live this way. We need to pull the plug. Her mom and dad came forward and said, absolutely not. You can't pull the plug on our daughter. And it turned into a uh, over 10 year long fight in the court system that kept Terry alive for over 10 years fighting about this. And it really woke people up to the idea that it's not enough for you to tell your spouse, yeah, I want you to pull the plug. You really need to have those documents in place in case it becomes a family fight. But even more important than solving potential disputes between family members, I think the benefit of of the living will is taking the burden off of your family members so that they don't have to make that difficult decision. You've already done it for them.
1: Yeah, that is such a, you you know, luckily I haven't had to be in that position yet, but you can just think of the mental and emotional sort of pain and anguish over, that that you would feel in having to make that decision for your spouse or for your parent or whoever it is without knowing what they wanted to do. So I, I do think that's a critical piece there that last point you mentioned is just it it takes that guilt or pain away because you know this is what that person wanted exactly okay so that we got the lit we got the will we got the trust hit on the living will the last piece and you mentioned it a little bit earlier but is that is the financial or or the power of attorney piece right i, I think of it as sort of financial power of attorney when we're dealing with clients in a situation like this, we need that on file. So the, whoever they've chosen can make decisions for them if they're unable. Um, but talk about real, real briefly, just purpose of a power of attorney and, and when that may come into play.
2: Yeah. So the power of attorney comes in two, two forms and and we want clients to have both. There's a financial power of attorney and a healthcare power of attorney. So with the power of attorney, what you're doing is you're appointing an agent who can act in your stead should you become incapacitated. So if you can no longer speak for yourself, we want somebody who can do that for you. And there's only two ways for somebody to speak on your behalf. One is if the court appoints them, and two is if you appoint them. We don't want to have to go through court in order to get a guardianship or a conservatorship for you If we have a financial power of attorney and a healthcare power of attorney, we can avoid that. So let's say, Austin, that you are uh, crossing the street, you get hit by that school bus, and now you're laid up in the hospital and can't speak for yourself. If you don't have a power of attorney, uh, your wife is not going to be able to step in and manage your affairs. She's not going to be able to make treatment decisions. She's not going to be able to sign your tax return. She's not going to be able to handle any of that stuff. So she's going to have to go and get a guardianship and a conservatorship. It's again, time consuming. It's expensive. If we have those simple powers of attorney in place, we can avoid all of that hassle.
1: With all these different documents that we've talked about today, how often do you recommend taking a look at who you've chosen? You know, just updating your plan, I guess, maybe is the easiest way to say it. So, you know, I come to you and I get all this stuff put in place how often do I need to be coming back to you to review and adjust?
2: It's a good question. So once your estate plan is in place, you know because your your family's never complete, your estate plan's never probably officially complete. You could you could think of it more like landscaping, where there's you know uh, maintenance. Oh, to don't do make me on, think of landscaping.
1: That's <laughs> my nightmare.
2: <laughs> there there are um, some things that you'll want to update for on occasion, but typically what we tell clients is. You know, once your estate planning is is done, um, every couple of years we want you to pull it off the shelf and say, okay, have, have there been any major t- changes in my life? Birth, death, divorce, you know, uh, accum- significant accumulations of wealth, you know, drastic changes in your net worth—all those kinds of things would necessitate, you know, taking another look to make sure that it still does what we wanted to do. And so, even though your documents aren't going to technically expire, we do think it's a good idea to you know, every two years, say, pull it off the shelf and say, okay, does this still match uh, with what we, what we wanted? And are there any updates to be made? And the most common update that we'll make to documents is updating trustees. So the trustee is the person that administers your trust. And that's normally going to be you during your life, but then you might have some um, specific people that you've chosen to be the trustee for your kids, for example, when you're gone. Well, you know, sometimes those relationships fade and you need to put somebody else in, that you trust more. And so we'll update trustees and then uh, updating your assets. That's the biggest thing is that you're going to continue to acquire assets over your lifetime. And so we need to make sure that as you acquire those assets, they end up inside your trust so that we don't have to uh, utilize that will to get them into your trust, that backstop that we talked about.
1: I'm glad you mentioned that because that I think is the thing. Having a trust is not enough. You got to actually put stuff in it. So as part of a financial plan for our clients, that's one of the things we help them with, right? Is what are all, where are all your accounts? What are, how are they titled? And do they need to be in the trust? But that's a living and breathing process because you're always sort of acquiring new things or getting rid of other things. And, you know, it really the estate planning process is a living and breathing process, just like financial planning. It's something that that needs to be reviewed.
2: Yeah, exactly. Your assets are going to change and we want to make sure that as, those change, you've updated, you know, so for example, you can kind of go asset class by asset class and, and say, you know, if, if it's real estate, for example, we need a deed to get that into the trust. If it's, um, you know, a life insurance policy will typically name the, the trust as the primary beneficiary of that life insurance so that the funds pour into the trust. You're not actually transferring the life insurance in in, in some cases. And so depending on what the asset is, we have a different instruction for how, we're going to get it into the trust. But ultimately, we want to make sure that all of those assets are in the trust. That's probably the biggest mistake that people make in putting a trust in place is they don't properly title their assets um, so that they all end up in the trust upon your passing.
1: One of the other benefits to having a, a living, breathing attorney as well as financial advisor. So yeah. Eric, you know we we really appreciate you coming on with us today to talk estate planning. If you have any questions for Eric or myself, please feel feel free to reach out to me. You can shoot me a text, 801-839-7056, or you can check out our website at wittenbergwealth.com. And please remember to subscribe to the Wealth of Insight podcast and share with your friends and family.
0: Thank you for listening to the Wealth of Insight podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Stratos Wealth Partners, a registered investment advisor. Stratos Wealth Partners and Wittenberg Wealth Partners are separate entities from LPL Financial. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Wittenberg Wealth Partners.